Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Undying Light listeners. I am your host, Pastor Alex, and we're back at it once again, looking at the Lord's Supper. So I said last week we're going to talk uh, a little bit about the Passover and its connection with the Lord's Supper, uh, and I think that's a good episode to kind of help us to, again, uh, bring understanding to uh, the overall text that we are examining. And so we will be uh, looking again at some more, some more Bible verses today. Uh, but I, you know, I, I want to, we'll, we'll get into the meat here in a second, but I do want to highlight this, that if you uh, just go out and search, you know, Lutheran view of Passover and uh, in the Lord's Supper or the Sacrament of the Altar, uh, you'll find a great short video. It's about eight or nine minutes long by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, who was on our show uh, a couple of weeks back uh, talking about Lutheran theology. So go and check out his video. Um, I might echo some of the same things he talks about in that, but uh, we're just going to glance at it. And we're going to try to understand it um, before continuing our journey into the rest of the scriptures that we're going to see. So last week we talked about 1 Corinthians 11 and Matthew 26 was week one where we actually um, started talking about the Lord's Supper. And then we also talked about Acts 2.42. And so we will see, you know, some other uh, p- points of passages that Paul gives us uh, and we'll see uh, a few other things that we will dig into um, before we go to the early church fathers and get their take. Now, we did obviously talk through uh, Mark 14 and Luke 24, uh, and we see those connections there uh, with the uh, Lord's Supper being instituted in those passages. So a little bit different language. We talked about that in previous episodes, a little bit different language uh, used, but Matthew, I think, gives us the clearest depiction. Now, when I institute the Lord's Supper, or when I um, bring the institution, the words of institution to my congregation, and I recite them to bless the bread and wine, 
I always change the English, uh, modern English word of covenant that Matthew records in uh, chapter 26. He record, you know, if you read like an ESV, it'll say covenant. This is the blood of the new covenant. I always change it to testament, which is the King James translation of it, which is interesting because I don't generally take anything from the King James translation uh, outside of the original like Lord's Prayer structure. But the uh, the fact that it uses testament changes the way we look at the Lord's Supper. And I think this is something that Lutherans really should uh, kind of fight to regain, if you would, uh, the this 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 word and the understanding overall with the um, the element. So we're going to talk a little bit about why that is here. So if we go back to Exodus chapter 12, we see the Passover being uh, established here. And so what is happening is we've got uh, the, the the plagues that have led up, the nine plagues that have led up uh, to this moment so far in Egypt. Uh, and the Lord is going to Aaron and Moses and he's telling them this is going to, you know, what this will take. And he's like, what I'm doing before I bring this plague is I am giving you a annual feast to partake in. And so every year you will partake in this feast where you will take a lamb, you will slaughter the lamb and you will roast it and you will have unleavened bread. There, there will be no yeast in your house and amongst other instructions that he gives you, if you read verses one through 28, you'll get the whole picture, but he gives us these commands and gives them to Aaron and Moses and says, do this. So basically what he's saying here in this moment is on this night, you will take your lamb, you will slaughter it, and then you will take it, the blood of the lamb and you will smear it up the doorpost and across the top of the door and down the other post. You'll paint the doorposts, the door frame with the blood of this lamb. And then God says, then as I come into the, the village or the town, I will see the blood and I will pass over that house. But the doors that do not have the blood, the Lord is going to go in and kill the firstborn son of every family, which basically is going to target all of Egypt. And so this is the greatest plague that God brings uh, as he is delivering uh, the Israelites out of Egypt. And so we see that this feast is instituted on this night, that this will now be an annual celebration, that the um, that the Israelites will remember that God passed over them. That's why they call it the Passover passed over them and essentially saved them from his judgment. But also it's a reminder that they, that God rescues them out of Egypt, took them out of captivity. So this has been going on all the way through time. Now the next couple hundred thousand or so years, however you want to measure your time in biblical years, but goes, you know, from the time here in Exodus with Moses all the way till the time with Jesus. So when Jesus comes on the scene, we have a lot of parallels between Jesus being the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb, uh, whose blood will be slain for all. And we see the, the commonalities, the parallels between these two, these, you know, two, uh, events. And when we get to the Passover, or when we get to the Lord's supper, the institution, and we're just going to use Matthew as our primary text. Uh, when we get to Matthew 26, we see that Jesus is, uh, going to take bread and he's going to distribute saying this is his body take and eat interestingly enough he's doing this on passover and so this is 
monumental because basically what Jesus is saying is you no longer need to uh, uphold that feast because this is the new feast. This is the new way that I come to you. And he's saying, take this bread, take this wine, eat and drink it for the forgiveness of your sins. And so there is some parallels. There's some, there's obviously some separations, but what we see with the, like a, a covenant, uh, for instance, and this is why I wanted to, to get to the tra- uh, difference and why I used tr- uh, Testament versus covenant. When we get to that point in the text and, um, a lot of the English versions will read, this is the new covenant of, in my blood. Uh, I like to go back to the original and see, uh, or not the original, but go to like the, the King James and read it and as Testament, because a covenant is something that is only broken when somebody dies. And so we see that God makes covenants with Abraham and he makes covenants with the nation of Israel. Uh, and those covenants need to be continuously reestablished because, you know, either Israel breaks it or the person dies and then it gets forgotten. And then God has to come in and remind his people what he's done for them. And that's the, that's the interesting thing with the covenant. We see that there's a lot of them instituted in the old Testament, but when we get to Christ, it is not another covenant that he's instituting, but it's his last will and testament. And it doesn't technically go into effect until his death, which just so happens to be this very night that he is breaking bread with them. And so, well, technically the next morning, but uh, this testament is enacted from the time Christ died and will go all the way through until he returns. And so we partake in the Lord's Supper uh, in those instances. So that's where I wanted to kind of hit on again. Um, Brian Wolfmuller does a way better job as at explaining the connections there, but uh, I do want to stress that there are some similarities and uh, some interesting points to, uh, to pick up on it. So uh, there's a lot of, there's not a ton of scripture um, in the new Testament really that talks so much about the, uh, the Lord's supper. Um, a lot of it comes out of a first uh, Corinthians 11 and we're going to look at first Corinthians 10 today. Uh, but that's where a plethora of them come. We've seen how the early church devoted themselves to a teaching and apostle and, and fellowship and then breaking the bread and, and prayers. And so that was really, um, a big, part of the early church was this institution. And so they were very much aware of the importance behind this. And we will see that echoed in the early church fathers as we get into uh, that text as well. So we talked again, like I said, about uh, uh, thing the, the first Corinthians 11, and we dug into the Lord's Supper and how uh, these individuals were uh, essentially abusing the, uh, the 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 sacrament that God has instituted with them, and so we will uh, dig into a little bit here. There's not a ton in First Corinthians 10, but we will look at um, a couple verses, and we will see what is happening here. Um, and I want to. 
address just a few things what Paul's saying because he's warning against idolatry uh, here in chapter 10. But uh, before we get into that, I was just kind of trying to survey and see if any other passages caught my eye uh, that we could talk about today. Otherwise, this is going to be a really, really short episode. Um, But a lot of it is very much what we've talked about um, in the previous episodes. And so there's not a whole lot of passages that really lay out the complexities or the mysteries of the Lord's Supper. It's pretty cut and dry. And I think sometimes we try and take uh, some of these uh, maybe concepts, these ideas, and we try and uh, inflate them to make them sound like they're something completely different or it can't possibly mean what the passage means. You know, for instance, with uh, Matthew 6, 26, we have this, this little section of scripture here and it's, you know, just before uh, Jesus goes out to the garden of Gethsemane and it's just before his arrest and he, he finished, they finished dinner and then he takes the bread and gives it to all of the people around the table. And he says, this is my body. And he's holding up this object of the bread. And, you know, we talked a little bit about it the first episode because I find that the, um, it's very easy to spiritualize a text like this because we want to argue the fact that this could very well be the body of Jesus Christ because it's not, it's to our eyes, it's just bread. And how could Jesus possibly be present bodily in the bread? And so, you know, for the longest time, I was very much in the camp of it's a spiritualization. It's, you know, Jesus is just, you know, giving us an illustration here. This can't possibly be his body and blood. It's just that he's maybe spiritually present with us and that's it. And yet before the incarnation, we see Christ walking the earth in various points, in various forms, the burning bush, wrestling with Jacob as appearing the angel of the Lord. And then we have other passages. Um, you know, when we get to Moses, the cloud and the fire in the sky, we have all of these different, uh, appearances of Christ in the old Testament. Then we get to the incarnation and we have him, you know, in full body birthed of a virgin walking this earth, fully man, fully God. And then he is put to death, rises from the dead and then visits a whole bunch of people and then ascends to the heavens completely bodily does all this in human form with his, with the resurrected body. And, but yet we will say yes, amen to all that, but how could he possibly be present? And I think the, there's a key argument that I want to tackle in this. And that is because, uh, in the first, uh, chapter of acts, we have the ascension of Christ. And then we know from other passages that he's sitting at the right hand of God. And so we would argue to say, well, he can't possibly be here on earth because he's sitting at the right hand of God. When, if we actually understand the fullness of what that means, 
that means Christ is in heaven or and on earth and he is fulfilling the will of God in whatever capacity it may be, especially when it's a baptism or the Lord's Supper, preaching of the word. We have Christ present in, in, in all places at all times. And he is the, you know, the combination of all things, all the prophecies, all the law in the Old Testament. He is it. Everything goes to him. And I find it interesting because we, we want to try and, you know, really make distinct separations of God, the father, God, the son, and God, the Holy spirit. And we want to say that each of these three have their own like little responsibilities and they each have their own little task. But the more I study scripture, the more I see how they blend into each other in terms of responsibility. Not that, you know, they're very distinct persons and I will adhere that to the death of me. They are distinct persons in the triune Godhead, one God, three persons, but yet we would also try and go and say that they each have distinct responsibilities. And, and I find that as we read scripture, it's hard to distinguish between which of the members sometimes, you know, is it God, the father in the burning bush, or is that the incarnate pre-incarnation of Christ in the bush speaking to Moses? Uh, is the angel that of the Lord that visited Abraham and Sarah were they, um, you know, was that God the Father or God the Son? Was that the pre-incarnation? Was it the Holy Spirit? You know, we see in Genesis 1, we have the triune God uh, in existence. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Because if we go to take Genesis 1 and we put that right next to John chapter 1, we see where God the Son comes into play in, in the creation, and that's the Word of God. And so it, you would argue that any time the Word is spoken from God, then that's God the Son. But then we have instances of when the Word would become flesh, a mystery in of itself. How does God's Word come to become flesh that is solely left to the will of God and the, and the design of God? But we see that this word that is spoken in Genesis 1 becomes the flesh in the New Testament with the birth of uh, Jesus. And so it's, it's not out of this world to think that, you know, the, the triune God would have, you know, separate roles where, where in fact, I, I just, when I read scripture, I see how they're they kind of overlap each other. And so when we when we want to argue against, you know, Christ being here bodily, I, I find it to kind of fall on its face because one, he's already done it, and he did it even be before the the incarnation. So he was walking this earth pre incarnated as man, appearing as man, not, you know, a, you know, developed in from a young boy into a man, but he appears as a man and walks the earth. Now, you know, we're only taking what Moses had written, you know, in terms of Genesis and the Torah and the rest of the, the Torah there. But we see that the angel of the Lord appears, you know, as a man in, in some capacity and fulfills certain roles and delivers promises and then you never hear from him for a while. So 
I, I think it's not out of this world to say that Christ is bodily present. And like I said earlier, I, I struggled with this for, for many years before finally just uh, allowing myself to fully embrace it. Because when I was attending a big church before I really got back into the Lutheran uh, end of faith, I was, you know, we were taught that, you know, the Lord's Supper is merely spiritual. It's a work of us and it's something that we do. And it was all about, um, interestingly enough, it was, if you can answer this question, these three questions, then you can partake in, in the Lord's Supper. And it was always, you know, do you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you accept that he died and forgive you of your sins? And then there's a third question. I forget it. But, you know, they're very, they were very simple, straightforward. And I always found it interesting because they never talked um, too deep on the, on the institution. They never got into that text too deep. And so you, you're always kind of just left with that mystery. Well, like, well, obviously, you know, because it just doesn't make sense that Jesus would bodily be present, then I can't possibly think that. And you never really do think that, especially if you've never really dug into the greater context of these verses. If you just attend a church and you're, we'll say, will, willfully ignorant of what those passages mean, you probably never even thought that Christ is bodily present because it just was never taught or told that way. And so when I started to read Luther and I started to, uh, you know, understand the book of Concord and, and we're going to get into those things on the Lord's Supper. But when I started to really dig into that, it just made so much more sense. And it actually, to me, kind of adds a complete wholeness to scripture because we see Christ pre-incarnated. We see him in after the incarnation and the and the walking of him is fully man and fully God. And then we see the ascension and then we see him still coming back to us in the sacraments and in the, when the word is preached. And I find that Christ's role in is in the preservation of the church. It's in the delivering of the promises. The Holy spirit is the one that delivers faith and you know, you, you, we can, again, argue the blending over the two, but, you know, I'm not one that's opposed to saying that of the triune Godhead that they don't each do all of the same thing, but yet not. It's, it, the Trinity is hard to explain, and there's really, you know, it's really difficult to get into it. And I actually preached a sermon on the Trinity um, a few weeks ago on Trinity Sunday, and I, you know, really have to be hesitant and careful about what we say because it could lead us to heresy. But I don't see anywhere in scripture where it would, where uh, the triune Godhead with three separate distinct roles can't overlap in those responsibilities. All right. So enough on that. I can babble on and on, but I want to talk really quick, uh, a couple passages that I've come across here. And we're going to talk a little bit about um, this, the marriage feast that takes place in revelation and we will see, uh, but first, before we get to that, I want to go to, uh, discuss first Corinthians, uh, chapter 10, because here we have just very briefly, uh, verses 14 and on here, Paul writes, therefore, my beloved flee from idolatry. 
Uh, verse 15, I speak as to sensible people, judge yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we, that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. I'm going to read on a little bit here, verse 18. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, uh, participate participants in the altar. What do I imply then? The food offering to idols is anything or that an idol is anything. No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Okay, so there's kind of a few things happening in this passage. Uh, first, Paul asserts this the body and blood of Christ being present. He, he reiterates that. And again, Paul was a staunch opponent to Jesus uh, until the road to Damascus in Acts 9. And so Paul never walked with Jesus as a disciple, but he received the, you know, the personal revelation from Christ in Acts chapter 9. Again, this happens after the, the ascension, and we see that Jesus appears to him and gives him all this addresses here. And so when he writes in 16 uh, and, and 17 here, he's saying, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And is the uh, and then when we break bread, is it not a participation in the uh, body of Christ? And then he equates the bread being one bread, uh, one bread, and then the body being one body, and so we all partake in the same thing. And so there's there's a mystery to it, but there's also some some connections that we can make in hopes to just say, well, if this is what Jesus said, then hey, amen, that's all I can hold to. I can't believe anything else because these words literally came out of the mouth of Christ. And they're demonstrated, you know, by Paul here in, in Acts, Romans 10 and uh, Romans 10. Where am I at? Galatians 10 and Galatians 11. Uh, and I'm just thinking Acts and chap in Romans as well for whatever reason. But no, Paul writes it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and chapter 11, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. So um, I want to really, I want to kind of work through the rest of this text because it's interesting what he, what he's talking about. This whole greater section is talking about eating and drinking and uh, to idolatry. And he's saying that the people, the pagans uh, will offer their sacrifices to demons. He says that in verse 20. And they, then he goes on to say that we, it is not the Christian's duty to partake in those meals. Now, we also see where Paul writes later that if we, you know, ignorantly partake in a meal that was sacrificed to demons, you know, our ignorance is, is there. We, we don't know. And so, you know, it's the same thing. Like if you're at a, you know, you go to a butcher block and you're asking for a cut of meat. And before you get the cut of meat, you know, like the day before the butchers, you know, cutting the, the cow up and he's offering this up to his pagan God. And then he turns and gives you the meat. You don't know that. 
you know, you, you just going to take the meat home and cook it and, and pray and thank God for the blessing and then go on. See, you're going to give that blessing to God. So that's a difference here. But when we willfully partake in it, that is what Paul's getting at here is when we know that they are sacrificing it to demons and then we go and partake in it because he says we cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. It's just you can't walk hand in hand in this. It is one or the other. And so that's what Paul's really getting at here in this passage. But nestled in there, he gives us this, this truth that we are participating in the blood of Christ in the body of Christ. So the last bit I want to really kind of talk on really quick here is the marriage feast that we see in Revelation. And uh, we have to understand the contextual premise around this passage because if we just take it at face value, we could probably jump in and uh, kind of lose our footing quickly. So, so if we look at Revelation 19, verse 9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And so we have an instance of the supper of the lamb, which we would probably be drawn back to thinking on. Uh, the Lord's Supper in the last meal that he partook in. But if we go back and we read those verses again, we see that Jesus has given us a, a demonstration that he will not partake of the bread and wine again until, until we are together in my Father's kingdom. Here at verse uh, 29, Jesus says, I, will t- I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day that I drink, drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So there's a connection between this verse and revelation 19 with the marriage feast of the lamb. And this is now, you know, again, as we see the, the new Testament, uh, giving us this, you know, kind of timeline, if you would, where if we kind of zone up a little bit and look at the old Testament and new Testament, we've got the, Passover, which we talked about at the beginning of the episode, being uh, an established feast for the Israelites to partake in every year to remember what God has done for them in Egypt. And that was all the way until really Matthew 26 here when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He says the Passover meal is done. This is now the meal you partake in because there's the assurance of the forgiveness of sins that is wrapped up in here. Then we have this instituted for us for the next however long until Christ returns. When he returns and gathers his church and his elect with him, then we will all be able to partake in the, the, the feast of the lamb, the, the banquet, the marriage feast. And I think that's an interesting kind of connecting point between these passages and Again, I think it helps us to see how they're connected, but yet they're separate events that Jesus will partake in with us. And so um, I want to really quickly touch base on one particular passage. It has really nothing to do outside of, or it has really nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. Um, but I want to kind of highlight this because it is crucial to the Christian to understand this. And so this is a big thing in the Lutheran churches. 
we generally open our service with the absolution and uh, the confession and absolution where we come before God, we confess us or confess our sins and then we are re- given the forgiveness by the pastor. And it's the assurance of that. It's the continual reminder that because of what Christ has done, our sins are forgiven. John 1.9, 1 John 1.9 says this. He says, if we confess our sins, he is, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's it. You know, we, if we confess our sins, then we will be forgiven. But there's also connecting pieces to this verse. We can't just singly use this verse as a kind of doctrinal piece to the Christian faith because see, you know, we, we may not be able to confess all of our sins all at one time, or we do what Luther did and over confess. And that's where he would spend hours upon hours upon hours in the, in the booth and confessing sins that were not really sins. And the priest finally says, Martin, you can't be in here all day long confessing this. You are, you need to go about your studies in that. And so I find it interesting. We can go to, again, any extremes with anything, but we also take this verse and we plant this into the absolution and confession because we are confessing our sins and then we are given the acknowledgement that our sins are forgiven. And it's also taking place in the Lord's Supper. Jesus says, for this is the uh, my blood of the New Testament, as we talked about the translation between covenant and testament, uh, he says, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so this is the this is the the hitting point right here. This is the promise wrapped into the Lord's Supper, and that promise is echoed throughout all of the New Testament. And so, uh, as I mentioned, there's not a you know there's not a thousand passages that uh, talk about this, um, you know this this event, this meal. We we see that. Uh, uh, it is only a few select passages. We have each of the gospel, the synoptic gospels accounting for it. Uh, John takes a little bit different approach, which we didn't really touch base on John. We might eventually, but we're not going to get too deep into that. But John takes a different approach at addressing some of these things. Uh, and then we see where Paul writes it in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. And we have that notion in Acts chapter 2 where the early church was partaking in uh, bread and fellowship and prayer. And so that shows us that the institution of the Lord's Supper that took place in Matthew 26 carried on into the early church. So I think that's really going to wrap our time looking at passages. Um, again, we could I could spend a ton of time talking about it, um, but I'm just going to be kind of, you know, uh, doing a lot of repeating. So we're going to finish the time with the passages. Next week, we're going to dig into the book of Concord and we're going to work ourselves through uh, some of those passages that we see there. And we'll probably spend some time looking at Luther's large catechism because there's a plethora of material there to help us understand Luther's argument on this is the body of Christ and this is his blood. So don't miss that episode. It's coming up uh, next week. And, uh, and that'll be that. So we'll be back Friday with another new episode. I have no clue where we will be. Uh, it's the 29th of June as I record this. And, uh, I have Friday episodes until the middle of July recorded. I have these Tuesday episodes until I think August recorded. So we might be in Amos still, or we might be in Habakkuk. 
But anyways, we'll have a new Friday episode where we will exegete a minor prophet and work through a chapter or two of the letter. And then we'll be back on Tuesday as always. So uh, thanks for tuning in and thanks for hanging out. And I hope you guys have a great week. God bless. We'll see you later. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.